Great to have you here listening to the Longevity Now podcast, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. We mostly cover the scientific advancements surrounding human biological rejuvenation. But one critical aspect that should not be ignored is the regulatory framework under which everything is progressing. A couple of months ago, we talked with the author of the book, Death by Regulation. In this podcast, we will hear about a new fictional account of how life extension therapies might progress through the political system. The author of the book, No Popes in Heaven, Hal Malchow, has seen the inside of Washington, D.C. and gives us some insight about the challenges ahead. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, the author of No Popes in Heaven, Hal Melchow. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Justin. Well, before we get into the kind of subject of this interview, could you give us a little background? Typically, the podcast deals with a lot of science. However, part of the progress in healthy life extension involves regulations. How would you characterize your background as far as your knowledge of the science behind rejuvenation therapies versus the politics? Well, I had to study. I spent about three months studying aging science and the FDA before actually starting to write the book. I've always been interested in science. First, it only took me five weeks to write the first draft, but I I spent a good three months researching um, aging science. There are a lot of opinions about it, and they don't all agree, but I followed the one that made the most sense to me. Sure, and it was a realistic portrayal of the type of situation we might encounter in the near future. You describe an anti-aging drug developed in-house by a large pharmaceutical company in the book. Is it your impression that this is a more likely development than such a a product that might come from a small biotech or academic research effort? Well, I'm not sure who is going to come up with the first pharmaceutical that enters FDA testing, but um, I would guess it would probably be a larger company, but I can't really say, but I think we all know it's imminent, that it's something that is likely to happen in the next five to 10 years. And people who listen to the podcast tend to think that, like in the book, once something is proven to rejuvenate the human body to some degree or provide healthy life extension for another decade or two, that all of a sudden everyone is going to just lobby Congress. I mean, the voters will be so persistent that no one could deny it. I mean, that's kind of the, a little bit of the theme behind the book, uh, in the book, the situation. However, there have been a lot of products marketed in the past as being you know, spectacular for health and rejuvenation. So people are always bombarded with this type of stuff. How do you come to the conclusion that at some point it is going to be an overwhelming support for an anti-aging drug when so much of this marketing has been around for decades? Well, there's been a lot of marketing around for decades. You you know, we still think antioxidants are going to increase our lifespan, although that's generally been disproven. When a major pharmaceutical company comes out with a product that they say is going to extend lifespan, that's a little different context, and that's a little different message. And I think if it's the third largest pharmaceutical company in the world, A lot of people will believe it. And part of why they will believe it is they want to believe it. 
you know, if you tell people that the world is getting hotter and we're going to have to make all these sacrifices to uh, avert global warming and climate change, uh, people are resistant to believing that because they don't want to make the changes. But if you tell people that a major pharmaceutical company has developed a drug that will delay aging and extend lifespan, I think the instinct of most people is to believe that. And the drug that is in your book, No Popes in Heaven, is Juventel. And you're basically saying here uh, something like that, if it is developed, like Juventel, by uh, one of the main things that will convince people is that it has been developed by a large company versus, say, That's correct. some garage biohackers, you know, come up with something. It's going to be less believable. That's basically your, your thought process on that. Yeah, I mean, anything, anything that is developed along these lines is going to have to be approved by FDA. And, and, and that's a stamp of approval. But, but as the plot develops in the book, this is, this is a problem, bringing a drug to the FDA for the purpose of demonstrating life extension. You know, this is a 15-year trial. Uh, it's enormously expensive. And whoever has a drug that really works is looking at probably one of the largest, if not the largest commercial market in the history of the world. You know, we've had the television and the automobile and the telephone and a lot of products that have been um, universally adopted. But we've never had one where a company basically has the right to exclusive exclusively manufacture and market the drug or the product. Sure. And, you know, in your experience in Washington, D.C., in the lobbying process and the bill creation process and your knowledge of the FDA as well, have you seen anything in the real world that indicates some sort of flexibility at the FDA for classifying aging as a disease that would help pave the way for some soon-to-come life extension treatments? Well, I, it does not seem to me, and, you know, I'm not a, a scientist who has practiced in this area, but it does not seem to me that it is, it is a difficult leap to, uh, uh, to categorize aging as a, as a universal disease. It's at the root of so many other diseases. Um, it's, it's a health problem. It's a diminishment of the, the physical uh, body of a human being. Do you know of any politicians that are kind of on that thought process? Because uh, many in the, you know, advocacy end of things, uh, people at Longevity, people at the SENS Research Foundation and the Methuselah Foundation, they're always constantly lobbying to get aging classified as a, as a disease. But what really is going to change things if the FDA and politicians get on board with that. Have you seen any indications of that lately? Well, no, but, but you probably won't see much indication of that until someone actually has a pharmaceutical. Uh, it's kind of a chicken and egg scenario then as well, because large pharmaceutical companies don't want to develop a product for just anti-aging because the FDA is going to reject it based on the fact that aging isn't a disease. So how do you go through the approval process? So it seems like a chicken and egg, and that's kind of 
the thesis of your book where the pharmaceutical company wants to circumvent the regulatory body and they do that through lobbying well, for a specific bill. Have you ever encountered that type of strategy in your career where you know, a large company goes to Capitol Hill and just lobbying behind the scenes uh, you know, for a bill that will help their drug approval process? Well, there was, I actually cannot remember the specific pharmaceutical or condition. I know a friend of mine who's an attorney and lobbyist in Washington was involved with a citizens group, more of a patients group that was dealing with a condition that was severe and as to which there were no other remedies. And they actually did go through Congress and get a bill approved that would make the drug available. Oh, I see. But the real problem, the real problem, even if the FDA has ruled that aging is a disease, the problem is that uh, if you have one of the most lucrative products that has ever been brought to market in the history of the commercial world, you are not going to want to wait 15 years to prove life extension. You are going to want to approve the drug for another purpose, market it off-label, and figure out how to deal with these advertising restrictions on off-label marketing. And uh, this is the crux of the book. Yeah, and it seems like that's a very realistic path that we're going to see some companies take in the near future. I already know of a lot of people and a lot of uh, clinics that use drugs for in off-label type purposes and doctors that prescribe uh, off-label right. you know, purposes. So you would think that there's a building momentum for that even though it's... Yeah, 20, 20% of all prescriptions are written off-label. That is a lot. You would think that that kind of greases the wheels or paves the way for more off-label use in the future, wouldn't you think? Yep. Um, but the FDA might not still come around unless they are forced to, I suppose, by the political bodies. Right now, no one can interfere. No one can interfere with the physician's right to prescribe any pharmaceutical, rightly or wrongly. For whatever purpose. Uh, to, for whatever purpose. I see. Okay. That is beyond the reach of the FDA. Well, that is, uh, I guess, an interesting avenue then, besides uh, trying to go through the entire regulatory and political process to get uh, things approved. The FDA, you need FDA approval to put the drug on the market and make it available to the physicians. But the physicians can prescribe it any way they wish. From your professional experience, how realistic are the backroom dealings that big pharma heads conduct among themselves, like you portray in the book? Well, we have kind of an interesting situation in the book that is not really common to the pharmaceutical, the way the pharmaceuticals lobby. What you have is that one pharmaceutical company introduces a bill to approve the drug, not because they want it to pass. They don't want it to pass because if it passes, it'll make FDA angry. They introduce it so that they will have the First Amendment right to put ads on the air promoting their legislation in a secondary sense, but in a primary sense, telling people what the benefits of the drug are. And then what happens is they <laughs> they give it to the person they believe to be the least effective member of Congress to introduce not wanting it to pass, he rewrites it to uh, include Medicare coverage and starts making speeches about it. And then a senior citizens group 
picks up the bill and you start using it for fundraising and everything spins out of control. In the end, you have one side of the pharmaceutical industry. What later happens in this book is the Speaker of the House, and this is a really important issue with regard to aging drugs and public policy. The Speaker of the House ends up stuck with this legislation, has to figure out a way to pay for it. And he figures the only way to pay for this is to repeal the law that prohibits Medicare from negotiating lower prices, drug prices, with um, the pharmaceutical companies. You end up with one company on one side and all the other companies on the other. Now, one interesting thing is about Medicare drug prices negotiation ban there that you you mentioned. That you, you mentioned that as something that only politicians in the pockets of lobbyists, you know, would support or that's the that's kind of the feeling in the book. Do you see any yeah. kind of upside for such a ban? The purpose is of course for the pharmaceutical companies to make more money, which they do. Their profit margins are among the highest of any major industry in the world. The upside is if they make more money, they have more money to invest in developing new drugs and new solutions. So there is an upside. It's sort of what happens is we sell pharmaceuticals all over the world, but the American consumer basically pays for the research and the development of these drugs. What's your perspective on the current popularity of the right to try laws. It was just initiated in the United States. I think some other countries are kind of dabbling in that. Do you see this as a good route to getting anti-aging drugs like the theoretical Juvento uh, into the wider populace? Well, I think no. I'm a little skeptical about right to try simply because in this day and age, we we don't necessarily live in a very fact based culture. All sorts of claims are out there on the internet and millions of people believe them. And to to allow drugs out there on a right to try basis without any sort of safety measurement or or really any measurement of effectiveness, I think is a really bad idea. The FDA is, is there to protect the public and they have this they have a balance and it's not an easy balance to strike. But I think they've done a relatively good job. Recently I was talking with a policy wonk who was very supportive of the right to try laws and the position this person made or the the point that this person made was that the people that are going to be trying it are going to die anyway. So why not let them try something experimental even if it hasn't passed safety trials? Well, if that's the case and that's the condition which triggers right to try, then, then maybe so. Um, you know, oh, okay. So you would you be supportive on, on basically that angle, and that's kind of the way these laws are kind of going toward people with terminal illnesses. You would think that would be yeah. a valid reason for trying it, because— It might be. I mean, I think I think the legislation would have to be very carefully drafted. But there's a principle there. Uh-huh. And then— The last question here, I wanted to know if you had thought about or practiced any kind of, uh, you know, healthy life extension or, you know, attempts at anti-aging before you did the research for the book, or was it a prior interest of yours? You know, I've probably had this idea sloshing around in my mind for six or eight years and just never did anything with it. 
I had written, prior to this book, I'd written two young adult fantasy novels, which started when my then eight-year-old son came to me and he said, Papa, let's write a book together. Um, well, my second book, I had emailed all my friends and said, hey, buy this book. And, um, and you know, I know you're not interested in young adult fantasy, but it'll help, it'll help me out. So buy the book. Well, after I did that and sold a bunch of books, I went on my Amazon page and I looked, I was scanning down and I got to the place where it said customers who bought this book also bought. And the first book listed was Hillary Clinton's autobiography, which in, this is for a fantasy novel that was written for 12 year olds. That seems kind and of I odd. Thought, <laughs> well, yeah. And, and the reason for that was that my friends bought it to do me a favor. So I thought, hey, why don't I write something about politics if they'll actually read? I see. Okay. So, so but now uh, you're a little more interested in perhaps uh, healthy life extension or rejuvenation. Does it pique your interest? Yeah, a little. I'm, you know, I run about 15 miles a week. I eat relatively healthy. My wife, she has MS, and she has to watch her diet as well. And I'm the cook, and so um, we eat healthy food, and I, I stay in shape. But I haven't um, used any other remedies to try to extend my life. And I really, if someone comes out with a pharmaceutical that is, that is life extending, I would probably think about it a little bit before I decided to use it. I'm not sure. Not sure. Okay. Well, the book is No Popes in Heaven, a political thriller about the potential political machinations behind a life extension drug. Hal Malchow, thanks for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. My pleasure, Justin. Thank you. Life extension advocates seem to think that everyone will be on board once a true rejuvenation therapy is available to the masses. But that might not be the case. Don't forget that many advancements have been stymied in the past because the political process was ignored. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.